Welcome to the 397th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Nina Sadowski, author of the new novel, Convince Me. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Nina Sadowski, author of the new novel, Convince Me. Nina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. If someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, Convince Me, yet, how would you describe the novel? It's a psychological thriller, and it was fueled by pure rage on my part. So even though I hope that the experience of reading it is purely pleasure. It's a book about, it starts with the, at a funeral, so there's no spoiler, of a man. And it's the story is told from the perspectives of the three people closest to him. His uh, wife, now widow, his best friend, who is also his business partner, and his mother. And what happens over the course of the novel is that they discover that this man who they universally adored and loved was not at all who he pretended to be to any of them and was a pathological liar. And so the action of the book is discovering what wreckage he left in his wake and figuring out how the people he left it for are going to escape it. So you mentioned that it was fueled by rage. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Convince Me? I do. So I was feeling just angry in general about the sort of post-truth world we're living in where science is under attack and there's no, like just things like honesty and integrity are seem so old fashioned. And these are values that are my values. And so I was in a furor just because I feel like it's really damaging this lack, this post-truth world. And it's leading to a lot of divisiveness. And I'm a peacemaker. So I, but I was angry and I, this is how I process the world. My fears and furies is by writing. And then there was one particular incident and I won't say names, but there was, a, it was an example of someone for whom I felt white male privilege and the fact that he was making money for people 
allowed just shockingly terrible behavior to be excused. And in that moment, I just went, I've had it. And the entire book came into my head like an arrow in my forehead. I I knew everything down to the final twist. I knew that I wanted to kill my character, the liar, Justin Childs, before the book began. And and that was partly because it was just so satisfying to kill him because I created this character I really hated, but also (laughs) because I didn't want him in the, as the book unfolded and his history unfolded, I didn't want him to be able to resort to his usual tricks of deflection and defense. I wanted him to be finally laid bare in his death. So then the process of writing it was literally like pulling that arrow out of my head into the computer, very different from my usual process. Usually I set hours to work and I commit to those hours and some days it's good and some days it's bad and some days it's just research or thinking but that my process in this book it was completely different I was feverish I was waking up in the middle of the night to write I was writing in snatched half hours if I had them and I would sit back down at the computer and I would know exactly where I wanted to go it was remarkable I felt almost like I channeled the book more than I wrote it and I finished it in the first draft in four and a half months which is the fastest I've ever written anything of this scale. Yeah, it was really incredible. And very, as I say, very different from my usual plotting mule of a (laughs) process. (laughs) Well, what is your usual process? I, I believe strongly, and I also teach writing. So I've learned to articulate to this to my students, although it was instinctual in the beginning for me. But I believe that there are two kinds of thinking you need for good writing. And I call them vertical and lateral. And so vertical thinking is structure and stereotypes and tropes, which we can lean into sometimes. It's craft, all the things in the craft toolbox. And then the lateral thinking, I think, is all that kind of more intuitive, juicy, authentic to the self stuff that I think you have to really open up the channels to. And I'm a former lawyer, I'd say a lawyer in recovery. So that part of my brain really deals well with all the structure and and the limitations, and particularly because I wrote and still write in film and television, but that's where I wrote. I wrote for film and TV long before I ever wrote a novel, which is very highly structured. But then the lateral part is that I like to call that sort of connection to the divine unconscious. And so when I'm getting ready to write, I really take a little time. I I stretch and do some yoga or Pilates to try to get into my body. I meditate, I dance, which has be- I've become known for. <laughs> I make, <laughs> make my classes dance with me. I make people who are in workshop retreats dance with me. I make people in the educational program I run dance with me every afternoon for because I think dance is joy. And then when I've gone through those steps of stretching out my mind, stretching out my body and integrating the two, then I sit down to work. And as I said, I try to block off specific hours. I have a day job, so I have to be very precise about my time. And so I block off specific hours and I commit to those hours. And I wrote my first book, just which I did without any dream of really getting it published and hopes, of course, but no real dreams. I really did it for myself because I was losing my love of writing after being beaten up by the film and television business. I said, I'm just going to write a book. I've always wanted to. That book I wrote three hours a week on Sundays for a year and a half before I had a draft. I showed it to no one. I told no one I was doing it because I didn't want anyone saying, how's that book coming? And me having, oh, no answer to that question. (laughs) But, But I just plugged away at it. And finally, I had a book. And then And I was lucky or have earned a lot of relationships over my 20 years working in the film business. So the people that I could give it to were admittedly more correct connected than most authors. But then within three weeks of that, I had uh, an agent 
at Lit Agent in New York, and she sold it at auction to Ballantyne. And this is my fourth book with Ballantyne, and I just signed a deal for my fifth. So this has turned out very well for me. I'm very grateful to my whole team and to Ballantyne, who's shown just extraordinary publishers have shown extraordinary faith in me. Well, you were talking about Convince Me and you were talking about a post-truth era that we're living in, but you've also worked in Hollywood extensively. Is there kind of a disconnect there? (laughs) Well, no, I think there's actually a connect there because I will say I've worked in Hollywood a long time and I started as a young and I wouldn't say totally naive. I came into the business with a law degree and some innate smarts, but I do feel that I've seen everything in the business from the tactful white lie to the outright bait and switch to just appalling behavior. I And I've had partnerships with some people, professional partnerships or working relationships, people that were just toxic because of lying. So a part of it, I think every writer writes from an authentic personal place, right? So I certainly had stuff to draw from there. I was talking about a larger cultural thing that I observed, but of course, a lot of it was fed by personal experience. And I'll tell you something interesting is that right after I finished the book, I found an old journal from a period that was Right after I had worked with one of the most toxic liars I had ever worked with, one that who just created wreckage (laughs) everywhere he went. And I looked back at my post. I didn't read through the parts where he was torturing me, which went on for months, because I thought it was so interesting that I just opened it at the place in the journal where I was like, okay, I've processed this. I know who he is. I know how I'm going to proceed now. Like I had found my strength after it. And that's, that was interesting to me. That's where I, I found myself looking back all these years uh, later in, in my process. So yeah, I, I think that I have a theory about Hollywood, which I'll share with you, is that it is a land of reinvention. And a lot of people come here seeking to become something else or someone else than where they felt like they were when they were wherever they grew up. And a lot of people actually succeed in that. And that's the great lure, right? People do come out of Iowa corn fields and become movie stars or big directors or not to denigrate Iowa or cornfields and particularly now since I know they've been devastated. But my point is people do come to Hollywood for that point of for that desire to reinvent themselves. And a lot of times that's fueled by deep insecurity. So that gets a layer of braggadocio layered over it. And then what do you have? You have all the degrees of lying, the blusterers. the And also I do believe this, and I say it in the book at one point, as I think that every good liar really starts by lying to themselves and believing the lie they're telling. And I think that in the moment, they may not know, they may know that they're telling a lie before and after, but in the moment, in order to sell it, they believe it. And that's what makes them troubling. Sure. You talked about your first novel that you wrote on Sunday afternoons. And I know that you, as you said, that you've written many screenplays and you've done screenwriting. What prompted you to start working on that first novel? It was two things. One that I've been a writer my whole life, even though I've had a lot of other jobs, lawyer, executive, producer, director, educator. I still do a lot of those things because I joke I should pick a major. I just can't seem to settle. (laughs) But I'm sorry, I totally blanked on your question. (laughs) That's okay. I was asking what prompted you to write that first first novel on Sunday afternoons. Yeah. So there was really two things. One, that the desire to write a book, if not publish one, of course, you always hope, but to write a book had always been something that had been on a list of things I wanted to do in my life. And I was feeling, as I said, pretty beat up by the film and TV industry. Frankly, I was feeling that there was just a lot of sexism and a lot of ageism and that I was encountering. And in the world outside of Hollywood, I'm a young person. Hollywood's unforgiving. 
So, um, <laughs> so I was partly, and I, that was making me feel, I didn't want to feel that. I didn't want to feel those feelings. And I didn't, I wanted to really reclaim my love of craft and how I felt about writing, which I had always done from when I was a child. And I wanted to honor that in myself. And I thought it'll just make me feel better to write and to write something which I have con- total control over. Then simultaneously with that sort of being beaten up professionally, a very happy thing happened, was which I remarried, which seemed like it was going like gangbusters <laughs> until um, we moved in together and blended our four teenagers, which if you look in the dictionary next to the picture of insanity, next to the word insanity, there's a picture of me like during that period going, what were we thinking? So, so all of a sudden we were living in a house with four teenagers. It got very tense and very difficult. And this sort of what I thought was this incredible second chance at love was really soured. And my husband and I went away for a weekend, for beach weekend, and we were supposed to use the time to repair our relationship and to talk, you know, what to do about how we were going to get through this. But even the weather didn't cooperate. It was too cold to go to the beach. We went to the movies to get warm. We had all the wrong clothes. We weren't talking about the issues at hand because we were both afraid that if we started to talk about them, the whole marriage would crack apart. And so we spent the weekend in this uneasy bubble. And the very last moment before we were leaving, I was standing looking at the ocean, gray, skies gray. And I looked over at my husband lying on the bed with his hand flung up. And for the very briefest second, I imagined him with a knife in his stomach. And because I'm a writer and I process my anger by writing, I scribbled that scene down. And the opening of my book, Just Fall, has a woman standing in a hotel room, not me, not my husband, not in California, but in the Caribbean, um, with a dead man with a knife in his belly in her room. So I spun it from there. And then the other thing that happened is that book is about a woman who on the day of her wedding discovers that the man she's going to marry is not at all what she thought, but rather a contract killer. And she's told that she has to go kill someone if she wants to save his life. But the question of the book is, what would you do for love? And while my character was asking this in a life and death way, I was asking myself, like, what, how much, how much of this can I bear in to preserve this marriage? I'm happy to say we're years out, um, several years out. And the kids are all in college or out of college and you know, things <laughs> calm down. But for that book, I was very much asking myself, what, what are the boundaries? What are the boundaries that we will accept in the name of love? And because I feel that the emotions that we have when we're going through something deeply personal feel huge to us, right? Because they're personal. We can feel bad about a tragedy that takes place a hundred miles or a hundred countries away, but we feel our things so uh, deeply. And that's why I seem to transpose all of my big emotions into uh, psychological suspense, because it feels like a good operatic landscape for these big emotions. (laughs) So how does screenwriting differ from prose and novel writing? TV, well, there are two significant ways. One is that TV and film is very highly structured. You have to, if you're writing particularly for network television, you have to have your act breaks where those commercials go. There's a little more latitude with that in premium cable and uh, streaming, but still structure is very highly codified. Whereas in novels, you need a beginning, a middle, and end, which is really what I think all structure is really. When you get down to it, you can you know, break it up into five acts or seven or whatever you want. But truthfully, all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So that's one way. Um, The other way is the process way. When you write a book, it's really a solo effort. You may have some beta readers. I don't have many because I think it's a lot to ask other people to read a whole book. 
Um, but I have a couple of people I'll sometimes ask if I have a question. But it's really solo, you and your editor, or if you're writing on spec, you alone with whoever your beta readers are. And then all the editor has to do is say yes, and that book exists in a the world. They accept the book and it's published, and there it is, a thing that exists in the world, which is very satisfying because I've been, I've produced movies as a producer, the most famous of which is The Wedding Planner. So I've had things get made that I've worked on, but everything I've written for film and television still remains unproduced. And I've written, you know, dozens of projects. That's it. You have to realize that when you're writing a script or a teleplay. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's really just a roadmap for other people to do their job to create a whole other entity. And you have so many other people that need to say yes. You have so many other people whose opinions have to be listened to. Your agent, your manager, your producers, your executives, the director, actors, craftspeople, you, you, everything. That script is a roadmap. And you as the writer are having to navigate everyone's opinions and still figure out how to stay true to the, the themes and the impetus that originally brought you to this material. So it's, it's very hard to navigate. I actually, and that's something that I still find, I think every writer in Hollywood finds challenging, just distilling those many voices and figuring out how to stay true. There's something much more pure about writing a book. It's me and my crazy head and (laughs) no one can stop me. So are you working on another novel now? I am. I'm working on a novel called Privacy. I'm really excited about it. I just started it, but it's it's another psychological suspense. I I think that's really what I write more than thriller, although sometimes I'm categorized as a thriller writer. But it's it's again, I what I always try to do with my books is think about the big themes that I'm interested in. So with Convince Me, it was lying, obviously. With my Burial Society series, uh, which is about a woman who travels around the globe as acting as a one woman private witness protection program, uh, saving whistleblowers and abused women and kids. And so she came out of my feeling of helplessness that I couldn't do more to help people. So she, I like to say she's my badass avatar traveling the world and taking care of business while I sign petitions and go on marches. But with, so with all of them, I'm trying to talk about something that I think is personal to me as well as bigger. And with privacy, I'm talking about, of course, the loss of privacy that we have in our culture and what that's doing to us. I'm also looking at how much grief we can bear, which I think is very 
timely and, and topical. And as a tertiary theme, I'm looking at the sort of pervasive sense of violence that most women live surrounded by. So the, the, I know that sounds all very like weighty but, <laughs> and like dark, but I describe myself as cheerfully dark because I write about these things and then I cheer up. But I also, as I said, I embed these deep things that I'm feeling, my, as I like to say, my fears and furies. But I always embed it into something that I think is just a pure thrill ride, something that the reader will hopefully get to the end and ask themselves some questions. And in fact, on my website, which I'll plug for a second, which is just ninasadowski.com, I have posted their book club kits for three of my books, which include not only discussion questions, but also snacks and cocktail recipes. So I want to provide out and then convince me actually This is an extra treat. I included uh, a Spotify playlist, which is my 10 top songs about liars and lying, which is really fun to create a complete experience for the reader. But it's what it's my hope is that people just read my books and they go, oh, my God, that was so fun and fast. And I read it in a day, which is what I hear all the time. I couldn't put it down. The pacing was so good. And then at the end, they'll go, huh, with convince me, maybe they'll ask themselves, have I ever accepted information as truth? Because based on who was telling me the information, how I felt about them, whether I found them charismatic, where are my own lines about lying and lies? Where where am I comfortable with the tactful white lie? Am I comfortable with a step beyond that? What lies have I told? Has there been a cost to me? So people begin to ask themselves questions. That I think is the the icing, but I think the cake is also delicious. (laughs) Great. What writing advice would you offer for listeners who are working on their own stories and novels? Because I teach writing, I have lots of advice. I, I will say again, if you want, you can go to my website. I do a dispatch. It's called Dispatches from the Cheerfully Dark Mind of Nina Sadowski. Although during the pandemic, I've changed that to be from the Resolutely Resilient Mind. But one of the things I include in that on the regular basis are writing tips and videos that are plucked from the courses that I teach. But the best advice, here's the advice that I think is most important. Find universal themes because this is a mass medium and you want to reach a lot of people. So you really have to be thinking about the story in that large sense. Then you also have to be thinking about what is unique to you. This is the most powerful thing any writer has is their own unique lens, perspective, history. Everything that you bring to it is the thing that nobody else can bring. So don't try to ape other people. Certainly read a lot for reference and to get inspired, but don't try to ape other people. Just really remain true to your voice. The other thing I think is really important is that writing is a commitment to self. And so set, I do, I set the week, the time every week, I look at my calendar and I say, these are my other obligations and this is when I'm going to write. And I honor that time. And even if the work isn't good, I feel better that I have done that. And so it encourages me to keep going. I think people who are writers can't help but write. They can't help it. It's, <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic, I couldn't write for six weeks and I began to panic because I thought, oh my God, if I can't write, how will I process anything? What's going to happen to me? (laughs) But then I owed a TV project and they were going to pay me when I delivered, which was a good motivator. So I got down to work. And then once I got back into that routine I described of making myself commit to the computer, whether it was going to be good or not, or whether I was going to be comfortable or not, or I just did it. And, And then gradually I began to find myself in that beautiful place where I'm just lost in constructing a world, which... For me, you know, and I think we all feel such a lack of control now, when I'm creating, I control that world of that page, and I control these characters until the beauty thing happens when they come to life and start um, taking care of me and telling me where to go. 
<laughs> which sometimes happens. The other piece of advice I would really offer is to do a lot of pre-writing, by which I think the writing goes a lot faster if you do the thinking. So I do very extensive character bios. I do outlines, which I almost always end up deviating from, but I, it gives me a start. I almost get almost inevitably get to the middle of a work and re-outline. But I do these long character bios. I do a lot of research about things that I may not know about, which is also one of, I think, one of the great glories of being a writer. When I was researching my Burial Society series, for example, I wanted to create an FBI character. And through the Thriller Fest conference in New York, which I love, I got introduced to a guy who was the former unit chief of the FBI undercover school. And I interviewed him probably for, I don't know, 70 to 80 hours. And over that time, we became friends. So now if I ever get into trouble, I know who to call. Not that I'm planning on getting in trouble instead. <laughs> but and for convince me, I did a lot of research into various mental illnesses, into virtual, into virtual reality technology. When I set a book in a different location, I've had books set in the Caribbean and Paris and Hong Kong, and New York. Convince me is my first Los Angeles book. But I, I researched the cities, both by traveling, which is something I'm not doing now, obviously, but but also by just doing deep dives into the city's history and peculiarities of service and all of that I love. So I, I think the things that a writer has to keep in their toolkit are research, observation, extrapolation from the self. Those are really the three pieces. Great. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I just started becoming Duchess Goldblatt, which I'm Oh, did you say nonfiction or fiction? E either fiction or oh. nonfiction. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I just started Becoming Duchess Goldblatt, which is charming. I just finished The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which is also a very inventive book and which I enjoyed very much. And partly, and this is funny, in addition to not being able to write at the beginning of the pandemic, I found I couldn't read. And so I went back to like my earliest childhood comfort food reading, which was British Manor House mysteries, because you know exactly what they're all going to be, right? More or sure. less. And so I went into a deep dive of those. And then when I read The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which is a British manner mystery, but involving time travel and body switching and all this other really inventive stuff, I was excited because I was like, oh, here's someone doing something inventive. And that really sparked me again. I tend to read more fiction than nonfiction. Although I was very intrigued by that book that you're reading now about General Electric. I was yeah. curious about <laughs> that. I saw that in your email and I was like, oh, I might have to check that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting nonfiction book. I, I zoomed through it. I, I tend to read nonfiction a lot quicker than fiction. Oh, but, really? Um, That's interesting. So you mentioned your website. Are there other places online that people can find you if they're interested in learning yes. more about you and your novels? Yes. I'm on, if you go to the website, everything's there, all the links, but I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, The and of course my website where I post everything. Instagram is fun because I also post my art there. My, I uh, do drawing and painting and collage. I've been like, lately working on a series of COVID self-portraits, which are getting increasingly unhinged. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's another form of expression for me. And, and this is, uh, it might also be interesting to listeners, is that I almost always create a work of art in conjunction with something that I'm writing on that reflects the themes of it. I've done a lot of collages from places I've traveled doing research. I've delved into some old stuff that I found at my parents' house to create some other things, but there always seem to be thematically 
related. And, and, oh, this is the other thing I wanted to say about writing advice and how it relates to this is that I don't believe in writer's block. I believe if you think you're blocked, it means you haven't asked yourself the right questions yet. And that's when you should go make a piece of art or cook or go work in the garden and just think and ask yourself the questions. That's the other really important thing I think to do. That's um, great advice. Again, we've been speaking with Nina Sadowski, author of the new novel, Convince Me. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Nina, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Great. Stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Convince Me. Audio excerpt courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from Convince Me by Nina Sadowski. Read by Caitlin Davies, Sean Kinnan, and Carol Monda. And available wherever audiobooks are sold. I nearly died the day we met. It was February, just over three years ago. I was in Mammoth for a ski trip with my best friend, Bella. On day one, Bella wiped out on her second run. The next morning, nursing a sore wrist and lump on her head, she said she wanted to take it easy. When I came back to our condo from the slopes midday to check on her, she informed me she was hitching a ride back to L.A. with another friend. I couldn't really be angry. She felt like shit and wanted to go home. She volunteered to pay for her half of the rental and told me I should stay, ski, and mingle as she toted her suitcase out the door with her good hand. I stayed. I skied. I didn't mingle. I was protecting my battered heart. A man about whom I'd been foolish enough to entertain happily ever after fantasies had proved to be a serial cheater. This bruising realization, just as we had neared our first anniversary, had led to Bella's suggestion of a few days in Mammoth, a girl's trip, now a solo retreat. I tried to embrace it. I skied hard, came back to the condo, braved the colds to make it out to the hot tub on the deck cooked and consumed huge bowls of pasta mixed with decadent, chunky lumps of butter and generous sprinkles of Parmesan cheese. I passed out early, exhausted, and slept deeply. The day I was to drive back to Los Angeles, snow dumped on Mammoth, big, fat, lazy flakes. I'm a California girl, first in line to get my learner's permit the day I turned 15 and a half, so even though I'd been a self-styled demon of the road for 12 years, driving on snow was not in my particular wheelhouse. Wary of the weather, I got an early start, loading my little Acura, wiping a crust of snow off the windshield, climbing into the car and blasting the defrosters. I pulled out cautiously. I found out later that the temperature had dropped into single digits the night before. A thick sheet of ice lay beneath the freshly falling wet snow. As soon as I accelerated, my car slid and skidded, the wheels churning uselessly for purchase. Frantically, I tried to remember what to do in a skid. Turn into it? Away from it? Panicked, I stomped on the brake. The car fishtailed and spun. As the world twirled before my eyes, I heard a piercing noise and realized I was screaming. After what felt like an endless freefall, the front end of my car slammed broadside into a parked pickup truck with a horrific crash and the whine of metal greeting metal. The airbag exploded. My head snapped back and then forward. My vision blurred. 
I blinked and wiped my eyes. My hand came away bloody. But I was alive. I sat there dazed for a moment. Or maybe it was an hour. A face appeared through the splintered windshield. A man's face, kind and open, classically handsome, twisted in concern. He opened my car door and leaned in. I'm Justin Childs, he introduced himself, and it looks like you might need a hand. He's dead now, this man I came to know and love and marry. I'm a widow, at the tender age of 31. That fact, cold, hard, and inescapable, seems distant and absurd, like a tragedy from someone else's life, not mine. This wasn't supposed to happen to me. My life before Justin's death wasn't perfect. I had my fair amount of shit like anyone else, but I was aware that I enjoyed a lot of relative privilege. I'm white. I was blessed with appealing looks. I was raised in a solidly middle-class family. I'm well-educated. My bio dad took off when I was a baby, and sure, maybe that left a wound. But my mom remarried, and my stepdad, Santi, adopted me when I was a little kid, and I love him like a father. I have perspective, is the point. I've enjoyed advantages my entire life, and I'm smart enough to recognize how lucky I am. How lucky I was. I'm conscious of the drone of the funeral service around me, of the thick lump clogging my throat, the constricting itch of my jet black pantyhose, the press of fellow mourners around me. Yet I'm also completely isolated, floating above my husband's funeral as if suspended in a bubble, watching, observing. I'm seated in the front row, of course, the place of honor. On my right is Justin's brittle bird of a mother, Carol. On my left is Bella, my oldest friend. She wraps a gentle arm around my shoulders, as if she senses me floating away and is trying to tether me to earth. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.